Let's stand, if you would, please, and take our Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5. I love this time of year because everything revolves around the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so many verses of Scripture that contribute to that. But I'm thinking this morning about Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 6, of course, we know is the pronouncement that a child would be born, a son would be given. But it says something in verse 7. I was sharing with the choir and orchestra last night before we, before we had prayer before the service. I was reminding everyone that it also tells us in, in Isaiah 9-7 that of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And uh, I just want to encourage us that the Lord wants to grow his kingdom. He wants to add many sons to glory. And we're just thankful last night for those who trusted Christ as Savior being added to the kingdom of God. And we want to do our best and our most in seeing the increase to his government through the salvation of souls. And then I'm reminded today that Jesus Christ is the brightness of the glory of God. And we must not let Christmas and its commercialism and its materialism and all the hustle and bustle and things that go on overshadow the fact that it's all about Jesus Christ that we're worshiping. So this morning we're going to look at a passage of scripture that reveals that. And I want to notice, I want you to notice with me 2 Corinthians 5 verses 17 to 21. And we're going to focus on what we call in, in, in uh, Bible circles the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, the deity of Jesus Christ focuses on, on the theme that Jesus was God, 100% God, and he was 100% man. We went through for over a year a series entitled Nothing But the Truth of the Gospel of John, trying to declare the deity of Christ. And here we find in these verses here, verses 17 to 21, and verse 19 specifically, the deity of Christ magnified to you and I. And we want to look at that this morning and let God speak to our hearts and then get our hearts ready for tonight's service because we're looking forward with great anticipation for the Lord doing some great things there. I'd like you to read the scripture with me this morning, verses 17 to 20, and we're going to read it all together, and I want you to read loudly and distinctly and clearly. That's Bible reading. Bible reading is loudly. Bible reading is distinctly, and uh, Bible reading the congregation is a good thing. The Bible says give attendance to reading, and so we're going to do that this morning, and let's read verse 17 to 21 all together, please. Congregation, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he has made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I want you to notice in verses 70 to 21, there are many, many rich and wonderful Bible words that are given to us here. And if I was to give you what this, the theme is in there, there's actually three themes in verses 17 to 21. Each of these themes are kind of following through with just a consistent thought that Paul's giving in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Lord willing, next year on Wednesday nights or on Sunday nights, I'm not sure which one I'm going to start until January comes, but we're going to start a series that's going to go through 1 Corinthians and then into 2 Corinthians, and we're going to revolve. In fact, next Sunday night, I hope you'll be in church next Sunday night. We're just coming off a great fall season of many souls being saved and God doing things and trying to line up folks for baptism. But next Sunday night, I'm going to do something a little bit early. Normally about the first or second Sunday of January, I give the theme for the new year. I'm going to give the theme for 2020 
next Sunday night, and you want to be there for that. I've already prepped the, uh, the staff and the deacons about it. We're all excited about it, and all the things we're doing around church revolve around it. Very excited about it. We have our church calendar ready for distribution and our new tracks for the new year all ready for distribution. You're not going to get them to January, though, but, but we're ready to give those out, and it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful thing. But I want you to notice in all of this, that there's a theme that Paul has here. And you'll notice he, he's ta- he talks about, going from chapter four to five, about just eternity. And he talks about the struggles we have in this life. And he talks about things that, that, this, this, that about this earthly tabernacle we have. Our body's called a tent or a tabernacle. And he talks about, in, in chapter four, about the, the afflictions we have. And Paul's definition of our afflictions and difficulties, he calls them a light affliction. Because he says they're just momentary, they're temporary, compared to what God will give us in eternity. And he talks about that, how the outward man perishes. And we feel that way. We feel the aging effect. We feel the effect of disease and sickness. Just as, I, as we took the offering, just got a message. And I'd like to ask that you pray for Judith Hightower right now, for her family. Her sister-in-law, Perry, has been on our prayer page for, for many months. She's been in declining health. And just last Saturday, uh, uh, Judith had the opportunity of reading the Right Start booklet to her sister-in-law about how to be saved. And there, the God answered prayer and gave uh, her sister-in-law, Perry, a waking moment, what we call this last surge of energy before someone leaves this life. God gave this dear lady a surge of energy. She's very cognitive, very alert. She heard the gospel. Judith read it to her, and she says, do you understand this? Do you want to make this real? Do you want to trust Christ as Savior? Perry trusted Jesus Christ as her Savior, literally here in the 11th hour. And just, just a moment ago, as we were taking the offering, just got a message from Judith that her sister-in-law, Perry, went home to be with the Lord at 4 o'clock this morning. And, uh, you know, hearts a break over that. We grieve over that, especially during this time of the year. But our bodies, if you would, are an earthly tabernacle. And Paul describes here in chapter 5, you know, when we pass this life, we're going to put off this mortal, but we're going to put on immortal. And he talks about the fact that we're confident of this one thing, that being absent from the body is being present with the Lord. But that doesn't change the fact that we get old. And it doesn't change the fact that we get tired. And it doesn't change the fact that we get weary and sickness comes and disease comes. And so he goes on by telling us there's something far bigger we have to look forward to. And that thing that we look forward to is the fact that while we're here on earth, the reason why Jesus died is given here. And the reason why Jesus died is given to us as a motivation. And notice if we get to verses 17 21, there's three very simple themes that Paul gives us. Number one, he gives to us the redemption of the sinner. In verse 17, he says, Therefore, if any man be Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, he defines to us what this means to be converted, what it means to be saved. He talks about the redemption of the sinner. But as we work our way through this passage of Scripture, we see something else. He speaks about the responsibility of the saint. Now, if, you're, if, you're, if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, I want to give you some good news. You're a saint in God. You've been set apart to the glory of God. The word saints actually is in the plural because it speaks about all of us who are saved. We're all saints in Jesus Christ. There's no waiting process. There's no council that has to decide that. God already decided that you and I are set apart for him. And by the way, the word saint in the Bible is the same word we get our word holiness or sanctification from. It's the word that speaks about being set apart for God. So we look at this passage and it starts to get us really fired up because we see the, we see the redemption of the sinner and we see the responsibility to the saints. But notice we see something else and this is our theme in verse 19. This is what we'll be studying today, and I hope you'll take some copious notes and you listen very carefully. He gives to us here this theme I'm going to preach on this morning that we'll lead into tonight. We see the redemption of the sinner. We see the responsibility of the saints, but I want you to notice preceding all of that is the revelation of the Son. 
The Bible says here in verse 19, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. The first time I walked into a Bible-preaching church, the church I got saved in, they had a banner up in that old cracker box building they had. They had a banner up in the back of the wall. And that banner in English in another language said, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. I'll be honest with you, as a 14-year-old boy, what caught my attention was the word God was in Christ. I really didn't comprehend at that time what it meant, reconciling the world unto himself. I used to look at that every Sunday for those early days when I got saved, and I didn't really comprehend it. But today, as I have a comprehension of it, I want you to understand what it means today. God was in Christ. God was in Jesus Christ. And we want to see this morning the title of the message, God in Christ, and what that means to you and me. Now, Father, bless the service this morning. We pray that more than enlighten us, we pray that, Lord, that you'd open our minds and enlighten us and stir us. And, Lord, we pray that you help us to just love the deity of Jesus Christ and love the fact during this time of year emphasis is given in churches like ours about the preaching and exaltation of Jesus Christ. Thank you this morning that he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And we thank you that, Lord, that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's a great and mighty and holy potentate. And Lord, that every tongue will confess and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But with all that reminded that Paul says, we're to let this mind be in us, to be in you, which was also in Christ. Jesus. And today, Lord, let us help us to see Jesus as our Savior and Jesus as our substitute. But help us to see Jesus as the one who sustains us and helps us through his grace. I pray this morning, if there's any here who are not 100% certain about where they'll spend eternity, use the message this morning to point them to yourself. And then use today, Lord, to help encourage us to grow in the faith and to draw closer to the Lord. We pray these things of you now, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, amen. You may be seated. Well, believe it or not, to you and me, I think as we get older, Christmas seems to be coming faster and faster and faster. It's amazing you go into the stores, and already in September, they're starting to get Christmas decorations up. In fact, I think the, the Halloween decorations, which, by the way, Christians don't believe in Halloween, amen, you know, we don't believe in that, but, you know, they kind of get that out, and they, they supplant that very quickly with all the Christmas decorations and things that are out there, and it's an amazing thing. And I don't know about you, but when I think about the 12 days of Christmas, I start thinking, it's countdown time, you better get your presents, amen? And uh, the, the retailers are thinking it's countdown time. We want more of your money. We want you to charge more on your card. We we're going to give you all these bargains. Buy one, get one free. All those kind of different types of things there. But Christmas, we think about it. There's a lot of things revolving around our mind. We think about Christmas. We think about gifts and we think about shopping lists. Today, in our high-tech age, we think about Amazon.com and we think about Black Fridays and Cyber Mondays and things of that nature there. We think about Christmas trees or fake trees, whatever they may be, amen? We think about lights and presents. We think about family get-togethers and if you're going to be like our family, I'm thinking about hot pot right now, amen? You think about things like that, and you think about eating, and you think about, you're going to have to make a New Year's resolution to lose some weight, and you think about singing, and all of these things. We're thinking about Christmas programs. I mean, there's all these things. I think about poinsettias, and I think about Christmas hymns, and all of those things. Those are wonderful things, and we, and we love to celebrate Christmas around here, but if we're not very careful. If we're not very careful, we let all of those things overshadow the fact that Christmas is not about things. Christmas is about a person, and that person is God's son, Jesus Christ. We're celebrating Jesus Christ. We're celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. Isaiah wrote this prophecy. He started out in Isaiah 9-1, speaking about the people being in darkness and how light had to come, and that light came through Jesus Christ. And he said, he made this wonderful pronouncement that only God could give. He says, for unto 
us, and the us is all of us in the world. He says, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. You have to understand at that moment of time, as Isaiah was writing that, there was a bleakness over all of Israel. There was a bleakness over them because of oppression by the Assyrians at that time. That was a great world power. And their kings, the kings of Israel, were not necessarily doing everything that was right. And as you read that, we read about how uh, the, king, the, the, the prophet Isaiah had lived through four great kings. And one of them, had that the Lord had to take him home early because of his pride. And he had departed from the Lord and his heart was broken. And we read about that in Isaiah chapter 6. And so Isaiah is looking at these people that are worshiping idols and they've defected from God. And their hearts are going after God. I appreciate a statement Brother Justin made at our West Contra Costa Bible study the other night. I had him preach that night. And he made the statement, you know, most of us as Christians, we're not going to be found guilty of worshiping false gods. But I wonder how many of us as Christians worship God falsely. And I thought, that's a great statement there. And a lot of times, we may not be worshipers of false gods, but we have to be careful that we do not worship God falsely. Worshiping God falsely means that we, have, we come to God with pretentiousness, and uh, we come with cynicism, and we come with an attitude of, like, come and press me today. What are you going to tell me that I haven't heard before? And we get caught up with intellectualism. And I want to remind you this morning, brother and sister in Christ and visitor here, though we may be a highly educated society, let us not get to the place where, we're, where, where it's intellectualism that appeals to us, but more importantly, it's the fact that it's the inspiration of the most high, that we realize that God is our creator, and we are his creation, and we were made to worship God. We were made to glorify God. We were made to honor him. And I'm going to say to you this morning, let it not be just that the shepherds and the angels are the one worshiping Jesus Christ for his birth, but maybe all God's people with excitement and enthusiasm and joy in their hearts worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, unto us the son is given, unto us the child is born. Now, it begs us to ask this question. Who is this child? Who is this child? A man walked through a town one day and he asked the town leaders, he said, hey, were there any great men born in this town? And the town leader said, nope, only babies. Nobody thinks of a baby being great except for the parents. Every parent, every father's got, he swells him in his soul, his son is born, he thinks, man, he's gonna be a ball player. He's gonna be a great athlete. If you're an engineer, you think, wow, he's gonna be great in math. You know? If you're, if you're, a, if you're, a, you're in the medicine trade, you're gonna think, well, he's gonna be good in medicine. You know? If you're a teacher, teacher's gonna be driven, he's gonna be good in teacher. If you're a musician, you think, oh, they're gonna play the violin, they're gonna play the piano, and all these kind of things. But we, we ask this question, what kind of child is he talking about? And then he talks about the fact he identifies the gender. Unto us a son is given. Who is this son? And we look at that, he's referring to the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we use a term to describe this. It's called the incarnation. The incarnation. Incarnation means embodied in flesh. Incarnate means Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. Listen to how the Bible wonderfully and beautifully describes how Jesus Christ, his incarnation. In John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. What does that mean? Jesus is the only one who was born. He's the only one of his kind. He's the only one who came into this world the way he did. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full, complete, if you would, full of grace 
and truth. Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, for great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Incarnation are those words. He's the word that became flesh. He was God manifest in the flesh. He was God sending forth his son made of a woman. He's what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God in Christ. And this morning, let us look at this supreme subject, this wonderful topic this morning of God in Christ and what it means. Would you notice four things today as we work our way through this and understanding what the scriptures have to say about God in Christ. Number one, well, I want us to consider his super supernatural entry. The Bible describes how Jesus Christ came into the world. And I want to underscore the words I've chosen. It, his, his entrance into this world was a supernatural entry. Jesus came into this world by way of a virgin birth. A virgin, mind you, is a young, unmarried woman who's never had relations with a man. Now, if you're not very careful, you have, this is why we use the King James Version of the Bible. If you're not very careful, if you use or if you read a, a different version. Some modern day versions translate Isaiah 7 14. They do not use the word virgin. They use the word a young woman. Well, I want to tell you this morning, there's a difference by, from a young woman and a virgin. A virgin specifically set, speaks about this, the, 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 the morality and the sexual purity of that young woman. And we want to give, we want to glorify God for the integrity of his word. The Bible specifically describes a virgin. Now, we know that the conception of a child biologically involves a father and a mother. You must have a father, you must have a mother. A woman cannot conceive without a father. Biologically, a virgin birth is not possible. But we see here the virgin birth of Jesus Christ did happen. It's the only one of its kind. It happened once in history, it will never happen again. It was the method and means by which Jesus Christ came into this world. Now what do we mean by this supernatural entry? Well, we must consider the prophetic word. Look with me in Isaiah 7, 14, please, if you would. Turn to the book of Isaiah, the longest book in the Old Testament, next to the book of Psalms, the book of Isaiah. In chapter 7, verse 14, is that prophecy I referred to earlier. There in Isaiah 7, 14, we see the prophetic word. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Israel. Now, the Jews were given long before Jesus was born this prophecy that he would come into this world through a virgin birth. Now, that was important because, number one, it created questions in people's mind. First thing people thought was, well, a virgin birth, that's just not possible. How's that going to happen? A second thing that comes to your mind, if you're a spiritual-minded person, is what is the significance behind a virgin birth? And we'll see that today. But the significance of this, we want to go back here, just the prophetic word. And so Isaiah prophesied of the virgin birth of Christ. He said an unmarried woman who had never had relations with a man would give birth to this child. In other words, she would never, there would be no human father involved in the bringing about of Jesus Christ in this world. Now, that's not the only prophecy that we have in the Old Testament. If you want to find out, if you're kind of searching right now, of trying to discover about what Christianity is all about, I challenge you to study the prophecies of the Bible that prophesied about Jesus Christ coming in this world. We have the prophecies in the Old Testament about his birth. We have the prophecies about his life. We have the prophecies concerning his death. We have prophecies concerning his resurrection. We have prophecies about his second coming. I mean, the Old Testament... Uh, 
it just, it just unfolds here in the New Testament, and, and we see the, the, the fulfillment of that. For instance, in Genesis 3.15, we have the first prophecy announcing to us in Genesis 3.15 that Jesus Christ's arrival is described as the seed of the woman that would bruise the head of Satan. So in other words, Jesus coming to the world by his very heel, he would bruise the head of Satan. He would defeat Satan by coming to this world. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, as Jacob is giving a prophecies concerning his sons, he turns to his son Judah and he says that the arrival of Jesus Christ is described as coming or descending from the tribe of Judah and he's called Shiloh who is holding a scepter. It's announcing Christ coming as king. It's announcing Christ coming in royalty. It's announcing Christ coming through the, tri- through the line of the tribe of Judah. And we see that as we work through scripture there. We go another passage and we see in Micah chapter 5 verse 2 that the city and locale that Jesus Christ will be born in would be the city of Bethlehem, a little city, an obscure city, a hidden city, and what not a well-known city, and yet a city by its very name is the house of God and praise. And it represents that Jesus came to that city. And it describes in Micah 5 too that his goings would be everlasting and described of him his power and his goodness. And then of course as we read Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, it would describe to him as being a son who is given and a child is born. We have the prophetic word concerning a virgin birth. But we go a little bit further. And notice if you go with me to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1 verses 26 to 35, we not only see the prophetic word, but we see a preferred woman. And we see the mechanism, the means by which Christ came into the world was through a specific woman. Now if you look at Luke chapter 1, and God, God, God knows I wish I had time to read all of this and spend time with you on it, but we don't. But Luke chapter 1 gives us the, the, the scriptural understanding of how Christ came into this world. Now, Luke chapter 1, we find that the angel Gabriel, whose name means the man of God, Gabriel was an archangel sent from God to Mary. Now, Gabriel is very busy in scripture. He's the one who's called the messenger of God. He brought messages to Daniel. If you go back to the prophecies of Daniel and the work work of Daniel there, we find that that there are several times that Gabriel went to Daniel. And we find that there are several personalities that Gabriel appears to over here and leading up to the birth of Christ. And one of those personalities that he came to was this woman by the name of Mary. Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal for the Hebrews was equivalent to an engagement, but a little bit more intricate. A, a, a families would prearrange the marriage between a man and a woman, in this case, Mary and Joseph were very much in love with each other, and their families had arranged for them to be married. Just there was a lot of details went behind that, and they were betrothed. Now, they had the responsibilities of marriage in the sense that they were, to, they were to be separated from one another, but they were not allowed to live with one another. They could not cohabitate. They could not have relations with each other until the marriage was consummated. Joseph was preparing a house so that when it was ready, he would bring an entourage to, to Mary's house and bring her and escort her to the home that he was preparing for her. But during this time, they were living separate apart from each other, but they were already pledged to each other. This pledge could not be broken. This betrothal was to each other. And the angel comes to her and gives her an astounding message. In fact, I would just say this. It was a message that would blow your mind. This message told her, Mary, he says, you are, you are preferred of God. And he says, you know, I, we give glory to God that you are blessed among women. And she was troubled at this. She said, well, who am I? I'm, I'm just, I'm nobody. And you have to understand something. Mary was not being set apart as a deity. Mary is not God. And Mary is not 
not to be made God. Mary is a woman, a servant, a sinner like you and I. And Mary recognized that earth, in an earthly sense, in human sense, that she was nobody. And notice how humble she was and as well as her fearfulness. She says here in chapter 1 verse, uh, verse 29 that she was troubled at this saying. And he says, he tells in verse 30 that thou hast found favor with God. Now what that means, thou hast found favor with God, God has chosen to use you. Can I tell you something this morning? If you're saved today, it's a wonderful thing. God wants to use you. God finds favor with you. Everybody here that's saved has a significant place and role where God can use you. And I encourage you before this new year starts to step out in faith and let go of your fears and let God use you. Let God use you to introduce somebody to Jesus Christ. Let God use you to trust somebody else's life during Christmas time. Let God use you to explain the gospel to somebody that you love who needs Jesus Christ as Savior. And so God says, you have found favor with God. And he tells her specifically, you're going to conceive in your womb. Now when she heard that, she said, what, do you mean? what are you talking about? That's biologically not possible. How can I conceive in my womb? There's got to be a father involved. And he says, well, I'm not done yet, Mary. He says, you're going to conceive in your womb, and you're going to bring forth a son. In fact, I'm telling you right now, you're going to have a child, and that child is going to be a boy, and his name shall be called Jesus. When she heard the name Jesus, prophecy is rolling in her mind now. The name Jesus in the New Testament, in, in the Old Testament, is the name Joshua. And the name means the same. Salvation is Jehovah. Jehovah is salvation, or God is salvation there. And she recognized the name Jesus represented that the Messiah would come through her. She could trace her lineage. You look later on in chapter 3, she could trace her lineage to the house of David. And she could trace her lineage all the way back to Adam, just like every man. And she recognized that Joseph, that Joseph could trace his lineage all the way back to, back to David as well. And he could trace his lineage there back to Abraham as a Jew. And so both of them had very similarities in that sense there. And she's thinking, wow, the Messiah is going to come to me. Who am I that the Messiah would come through me? And she's just, she's trying to get her mind wrapped around the fact it's going to be a virgin birth. And so she asked the angel this, okay, I accept the fact that I'm going to give birth to a child and his son and his name shall be called Jesus, which tells me he's the Messiah, God. He's God who will come in the flesh. And so she's trying to get her mind around this and she says, well, wait a minute, Gabriel, how is this going to happen? She asked the question, how shall this be? Well, the angel goes on further and describes, he shall be great and to be called the son of the highest. and others, he's the son of God. God is going to come here to this world. God's going to come here and make a difference here. He's going to come to this world and he's called the son of the highest and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his, da- his father David and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And so Mary's hearing all this. She says, that's Jesus Christ. There's no question about that. How can this be? That's what we ask. God tells us to do something. We say, well, how can this be? Lord, you want us to start a church. How can this be? Lord, you've called me to be a preacher of the gospel. How can this be? Lord, you want me to share the gospel with other people. How can this be? Lord, you want us to exercise faith in this area of our life. How can this be? Lord, I know I'm hearing you knock at the door of my heart that I need to get saved, that I need to be born again. I need my sins washed away. But how can this be? We ask that question. And notice God answers her in the way that only God can. He tells her in verse 35, And the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. He explained to her, Woman, here's what's going to happen. You're going to, the power of the Holy Ghost will be upon you. He says the power of the highest shall be in you. In other words, Jesus is that highest. Jesus is the Son of the highest. He's the Son of God. The Son of God will become the Son of man. But he'll use you to come into this world. God did not 
choose to come to this world as a man. He chose to come to this world as a little baby. He came in this world in an insignificant way. You wait till we get to our Christmas service and I'll explain a little bit more about God being in a manger. But I want you to see this morning and fathom the thought that she was told that she would be way the means by which a virgin birth would occur. You see today, when we think about that, Mary, in her mind, in verse 34, was thinking, how can this be, seeing I know not a man? She said, this is not possible. She said, how can this be? This is humanly not possible. This is biologically not possible. You know, that sounds like you and I. We need to do something by faith, and we need to trust God, and we say it's not possible. Let me tell you this morning, if real praying, real praying is realizing we're praying and asking God to do something that is not humanly possible. We're asking God to do something we cannot do. We're asking God to do something that only he can accomplish. And so Mary was at this place of weakness, and Mary was at this place of insufficiency and Mary was at this place realizing how is this going to happen <coughs> how can this child be born and he said God is going to make it possible God is the one to do it listen in our time of weakness in our time of where we're confused in our time of failure in our time of thinking it can't happen I remind you it's during those moments of time God manifests himself to us through the Holy Spirit and God comes to us and he tells us God can do anything but fail and I remind you today as we go into this Christmas season God can do everything but fail he doesn't fail in what he does God is all powerful and God is all knowing and God is almighty and God is all personal and God loves you and I want to tell you this morning God can do anything but fail there God the son entered this world through the womb of a virgin no man no human father would be involved Dr. R.G. Lee who was the pastor for many years of the great Bellevue Baptist Church was succeeded by another great preacher by the name of Adrian Rogers. R.G. Lee said this, Jesus was the only one born of a heavenly father, but not of a heavenly mother. Born of an earthly mother, but not of an earthly father. The only one ever born older than his mother and as old as his father. Thank God for the supernatural entry of Jesus Christ. Question number one we have to ask, how did Jesus come into this world? through supernatural entry. Question number two we have to ask is, why did Jesus come into the world that way? Why did he come into this world that way? Well, we see the supernatural entry, but notice very quickly, number two, his sinless essence. Jesus came into this world through a virgin birth that he might enter this world sinless, without sin. Do you understand this morning, if he came into this world by way of a human father, he could not be the son of God. If he came by way of a human father, he had a sin nature just like you and I. If he came by way of a human father, he was no different than the first Adam. I remind you this morning, Jesus Christ is the second Adam from above, amen? If we look at that this morning, we see the significance of the sinless essence of Jesus Christ because the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is an absolute necessity for Jesus to enter this world with the essence that he had in heaven. Listen, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And of all the great attributes of our Lord and Savior, the great attribute of holiness means there is no sin with God, and he cannot sin, and he has no sin. That's why we read here, go back to 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, speaks about the sinless essence of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 21, for he that is God hath made him to be sin for us. God's 
when you talk about predetermination, God's predetermined will is that Jesus Christ was to die for every sinner. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of all the world. We see here in verse 21, God made him to be sin for us. So in other words, he didn't have sin, but he took on it, but took our sin upon him. But we read something very significant. If we just stop there, we might think, well, then he must have been a sinner like you and I, and God chose the worst sinner to place our sins on. No, for he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Now that's shouting ground right there. There's something to get excited about. Jesus Christ is sinless. You, Matt, you put Jesus Christ here. You line up every religious leader, every founder of religious movement since time began, since God made man, and here's one thing you'll find. There's a common theme about every religious leader. Every religious leader had a human father, and they had a human mother. And every religious leader born in this world was born with a sin nature. But Jesus Christ had no human father. His father is our God in heaven. His father, he was touched by the Holy, the woman Mary was touched by the Holy Spirit of God. And Jesus came to this world with a sinless nature because there was no human father. And Jesus came in this world with sin and he left this world without sin. As we read the scriptures, we realize that Jesus had no sin and he could not sin. He is a sinless savior. John 1.14 describes it. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And notice this, we beheld his glory. What is the glory of God? That is his holiness. That is his sinless nature. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 4.15 for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Can I give you a thought here? As you read through the Gospel of John, <clears throat> John introduces Jesus Christ as the Word of God. Now before Jesus came and, and, and was introduced that way, we have to remember, God represented himself to, to, uh, to the people that to before Christ entered into the world as through his written Word. God gave it through the written Word, and God gave it through the oral Word. He gave it through the Word of Prophets. We read over in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 2. It says, God, who at sundry time has spoken unto us by his prophets. Then he goes on to verse 2, says, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. You want to understand something this morning. Jesus Christ came into this world as the living word. Now watch this today. He lived and walked among us. John tells us that. He came as the living word. He came as the word who became flesh. He took God's word, which seemed intangible to some, and he made it tangible by walking in the midst of all of us. Now here's what I'm saying today. When we see Jesus Christ is God's living word. He is God's heavenly language made understandable to all men. As the living word, he's understandable. He walks among us and he lives with us. He's God's heavenly language to all men. We have to understand something. When you take John 1.14, the word was made flesh, and every language that that's translated in, it makes sense to everybody. There are some Bible words and some Bible passages that are very, in Eng that are it made sense in English, but to get them translated in certain foreign languages can be a little bit difficult and daunting to the meaning gets across correctly according to how God meant that meaning to come across. But when you get over this verse here, and every verse of scripture, I mean every, every, every language there where it says the word was made flesh, it's all understandable. Jesus Christ is God's heavenly language. And as we read Hebrews 4.15, Jesus Christ not only is the living word, but he's our great high priest. The great, the high priest of the Old Testament went behind, went into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice for the sins of all the people which would atone for their sins. But Jesus did more than that. He had to, the high priest of the Old Testament had to make an atonement for his sins and the sins of the people. Jesus didn't have to die for his sins because he had no sin. Glory to God. Amen. He had no sin. But the Bible says, for we have such a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are. Can you fathom this? Jesus Christ was tempted in every area just like you. 
and me. Satan tempted him. He tempted him in the areas of lust and appetite and greed and covetousness and self-worship. He tempted him in all those areas. And the Bible says he was touched with the feeling of our infirmity. Listen, there's no problem. There's no suffering. There's no affliction. There's no difficulty you experience that our Savior, Jesus Christ, did not experience. He was touched in all points with the feeling of our infirmities. And the Bible says he was tempted like we are in all points. And yet he was without sin. We have a Savior who's sinless. Hebrews 7.26 says, For such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens. Peter, in describing the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ, said in 1 Peter 1, verse, chapter 2, verse 22, 1 Peter 2, 22, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. And then I like what 1 John 3, 5 says. 1 John 3, 5 says, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sin, and in him is no sin. Now John, 1 John 1, uh, 1 John 3, 5 explains it all. He was manifested, he came to take away our sin, but in him is no sin. You see, we must must have a sinless Savior. We must have a sinless Jesus in order for our sins to be atoned for. Without a sinless Savior, your sins could not be paid for in full. Without a sinless Savior, Jesus' death on the cross could not satisfy God's demands for sin. He became sin for us who knew no sin. And we thank God today that Jesus Christ, who's equal with God, and Jesus Christ, who's eternal with God, and Jesus Christ, who's just as essential as God, Christ came into this world with who he was in heaven and eternity. He came into this world with a sinless nature. We see this morning how that explains it. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Well, we see question number one, how did Jesus enter this world? Well, we see supernatural entry. Question number two, very quickly, we see the reason, the process by which he came into the, 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 or the why he came into the world, and that is through a, through his, for his sinless essence. But notice number three, we see the reason why Jesus had to come in this world. And notice we find this here in chapter five, verse 19. Call that his substitutionary expiation, or you might want to put down his substitutionary experience. Expiation means he gave his life as a sacrifice for you and I. God was in Christ through his supernatural entry. God was in Christ through his sinless essence. God was in Christ through his substitutionary experience for you and I. We read verse 19. We read these verses of scripture. Jesus Christ was the sacrifice for all of our sins. Verse 19 gives explanation to what John 3.16 says. Now, what do we mean by this? Okay? Well, we see, we see a couple things about the death of Christ. First of all, we see Jesus Christ as, our, as, our, as the sacrifice for you and I. Now, what do we mean by sacrifice? Our choir, orchestra, and the drama cast have sacrificed a lot of Sunday and Saturday afternoons to prepare and rehearse over and over again. To do a one-hour presentation Saturday night and a one-hour presentation Sunday night to be a blessing to everyone who comes, but most important, to give glory to God. They sacrifice. These buildings we have here on the property, in fact, this property itself, 2960 Merced Street, Building number two, the Heritage Center. Building number three, the Berean Center, had been accomplished through sacrifice. Some people gave up vacation money. Some people gave up money they could set aside for retiring early or, extend, or having additional vacations. Some people gave up uh, 
money they would put aside for furniture or whatever it may be. There was sacrifice involved. You see, a sacrifice is something costly that you give up. Something costly that you give up. When something valuable is given up for something else. Now, when you think about it, what's the most important thing you've ever made a sacrifice for? And whatever that is, praise God for that. But I want to tell you this morning, when Jesus Christ sacrificed his life, he gave the greatest thing that could be given. He gave his life. He sacrificed all that he had. He sacrificed the shedding of his blood. He sacrificed his life. He gave his life for us. He died for us. And so we read Romans chapter 5, verse 8, and it tells us this, God, but God commended his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are the ones that should die for our sins. How do we know that? Well, he goes a little bit further. In verse 9, he says, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now, we are under the wrath of God. We're under the sentence of condemnation. The moment we're born in this world, we're already behind the eight ball, if I can say that. We have the wrath of God upon us and condemnations on us, and we deserve to be punished for our sins, and we deserve to die and spend all of eternity in hell. But when Jesus Christ took your place in mind, when he, when he died for our sins, he, if you notice this here, he, Christ died for us, and we are justified by his blood, and we're safe from wrath through him. Well, Jesus Christ, he was the sacrifice. He gave his life. But we, we see something else there. More than just a sacrifice, we see he was substituted. We say sometimes in our circles, we say he was vicarious in his death. He took our place. He was our perfect substitute. He took your place and my place on the cross. He died for our sins. Notice again, Christ died for us. He took your place. He took the nails in the hands and the nails in his feet and the spear in his side and the lashings across his back. He took the torment and he was reviled, reviled not again. He died for us. First Peter 3.18 says, Christ also has once suffered for sins. I like that. Isn't it wonderful? Jesus didn't have to have a repeated death. He didn't have to be like the Old Testament sacrifices that had to be done year and year again. He died once and for all for all sinners. He satisfied all the just demands of God by dying once for all. Christ has once suffered for sins. He noticed the just for the unjust. What does that mean? That means the holy one for the sinners. He died for us to just for the unjust that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but quickened by the spirit. He died for us. He rose again from the dead. But why did he do all that? He took our place. Why? To bring us to God. And, and, and we'll see in a minute how Paul explains that. And then we'll notice in 1 John 3, 5 again. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Christ was our substitutionary expiation. He took your place and mine. He went on your behalf and mine. He was God's great substitute. Now let's go a little bit further and go back to 2 Corinthians five 19. We're explaining here what we call the redemption of the sinner. We're explaining here the atonement for sins, the payment price for sins. But I want you to notice in verse 19 how, how the Apostle Paul explains what I call this expiation, the sacrifice, the substitution. Would you notice the greatness of what God accomplished for us through the death of Jesus Christ? To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. Now, there's two phrases Paul uses there that are so profound and yet so simple. So powerful, and yet we might overlook them. Number one, he uses that term, imputing their trespasses unto them. Now, imputing is a financial word that was used more in the olden days. Imputing means, or imputation means, to put on the account of another. That means, as you've heard me use many times, that, that someone else's debt is placed on the account of someone else. 
And do you imagine me? I'll go through just for the sake of it real quickly here. But I want you to imagine me for just a minute. Brother Tony Gura here. Imagine with me Tony, Tony, Brother Tony Gura. Now he's very conservative, so this is not what Tony does. But let's just imagine he gets all fired up. This is Christmas time. And he realizes he's got a credit limit of $20,000. Do you have a credit limit of $20,000 on your card? Let me use it if you do, okay? Amen. But he's got a credit limit of $20,000 on his credit card. And Brother Tony gets all excited. And he says, Brother Justin's my good friend. And I've got all these good friends in church. And Brother Anthony's my good friend. And, and I love my pastor. And he says, I'm going to charge it up. And I'm going to spend all this up and he gets to the credit limit except for the fact that he forgets he's got to pay that all back well everything's okay until he gets that credit card statement in january and the credit card statement he opens it up carefully because he says oh i wonder how much i owe and he realizes he's hit his credit limit and he looks at his budget which was not very strong to begin with and he says man i'm barely making it now and so he tries to get by with the minimum he can. Now, you know this. If all you pay is the interest on your credit card bill, you're never going to get your credit card bill paid off. He's got this exorbitant interest on his credit card bill. First month, he kind of, okay, I'll get by it. Second month, I kind of get by it. 12 months goes by. 24 months goes by. He's been paying just barely interest only, and he's realizing he's not making debt on that debt, and he's starting to get flustered because he realizes his credit is affected. His score has gone down. He's realizing all these factors are worried against him. He realizes his budget's tighter than ever before. How am I going to deal with this? I can't borrow any more money. My car's about to break down. I can't get a car loan. What am I going to do? And he's, he's, he's really stressing out about this. Brother Anthony comes along, and Brother Anthony, Brother Anthony Tang happens to be just, let's just say for sake of our example, he happens to be a very well-to-do businessman, and he hears about Brother Tony Christ, about Brother Tony Gura's, uh, Tony Gura's uh, plight here. And they don't know each other, but he says, he says, well, let me examine this man's life. Let me take a look at him. He realizes, man, you know, this guy needs help really badly. And Brother Anthony knocks on the door of Tony Gura, and he says, Tony, can I see the credit card statement? He shows the credit card statement. And Brother, Brother Anthony, he looks at it, and he puts his glasses on. He says, man, I've got to study this real carefully here. I've got to see if there's any fine print here that I've got to be careful of. And he realizes this man owes a bunch of money. He's at his credit limit. He also sees the credit card number, and he sees the, he sees the uh, telephone number to call the credit card company. He calls the credit card company. He says, hey, my name is Anthony Tang, and he says, I'm so-and-so, and, and I understand, I'm, I'm calling on behalf of a friend of mine. He's giving me authorization. He's sitting right here next to me. I, I, I'm, wanted, I'm inquiring about his bill. He said, I like to pay his bill for him. And the credit card company says, well, you know, that's his response to you. I understand, but he's given permission for me to call you. He I want to pay his bill for him. Well, the credit card company, at that point, they just want to get their money back. They don't really care who pays their money, okay? And so they want to get their money back. And so they basically say, well, if you're willing to pay it, do you understand what's going to happen? We're going to take his debt and put it on your account. You're going to be responsible for his debt. And that means Tony Gura's debt, which was exorbitant, becomes zero the moment it's placed on Anthony's account. And Anthony has the capability of paying it in full, and he writes a check, and he pays it in full, and there's a zero balance. Do you understand what's going on? That's a crude example, but here's what goes on. You and I have a sin debt that is so big, we are spiritually bankrupt. We have no capability of ourselves to pay off that sin debt. There's not enough good works that can pay that sin debt. There's not enough church attendance you can do that can pay the sin debt. Being baptized will not pay the sin debt. Being buddy friends with a pastor or somebody in the clergy will not pay the sin debt. There's nothing we can do to pay the 
transcendent, but Jesus Christ who is capable, and Jesus Christ who is God and who is sinless, died for your sins and mine. And when he did so, all of our sin debt was placed on him as he hung on that cross. And every drop of blood that he shed on that cross was shed on your behalf and mine. It was the payment price for every sinner. And when he paid it in full, and you realize you're a sinner, and by faith accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, your sins were forgiven, your sin debt was removed, and you have a zero balance with God the Father. Not imputing their trespasses unto them. Think with me for just a minute. Jesus Christ paid it all. He paid it in full. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but the sins of all the world. He tasted death for every man. That's why I love 1 John 1, 7. The blood of his son, Jesus Christ, cleanses from all sins. In his substitutionary ministry, our sins were imputed to him. But there's a second thing he says. Notice it in verse 19 again. Reconciling the world unto himself. Now, reconciliation is a term that we describe when two parties... There's an adversity between the two parties. They're adversarial to each other. And typically what happens, we'll use A and we'll use B. A has done something to hurt and offend B. And B is very, very offended and very hurt. And B says here, I'm the one that's hurt. I'm waiting for A to take the first step to get right with me. I want to be reconciled, but he needs to take the first step. He's the offender who offended me. He's the one, the, the injurer who injured me. Now that's how we think of reconciliation. You know, when we have, we have marital spites and things like that, every man has to take responsibility. In most cases, maybe the man created friction with his wife, and he needs to take the first step to reconcile with his wife. You know, reconciliation is necessary in, in, in between nations and people like that, and different groups of people, and when things, uh, there's an adversarial relationship, there has to be reconciliation. But typically, we think of it in terms of the one who's the offender having to get right with the one he's offended. I want you to notice what Jesus Christ did for us in verse 19. He reconciled the world to himself. Now, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is the Holy One. Amen. Jesus Christ is the one who's deserving of our praise and our honor and our glory. Would you fathom this? He's the one that's been offended. That's why the Bible says in Romans 5, 8, God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners. As sinners, we've offended God. Do you get that this morning? Amen. We've offended God. We have injured God. We've done wrong to God. Don't, don't come to God with your self-righteousness and say that I'm, all, I'm okay. No, we're not okay. We, are, we have offended God. And we should be the ones going to God and seeking reconciliation with God. But the marvel this, my fathom this thing, the marvel of the love of God. God loved us so much. God came to us. And he reconciled you and me, the world, to himself. And how did he do that? Through Jesus Christ. God was in Christ through reconciliation. And how did he do the reconciliation? Through the blood of of his cross. Now watch this. When reconciliation occurs, there's peace and there's harmony and there's accord. And the Bible tells us in Colossians 1.20, and having reconciled us to us, he made peace with us through the blood of his cross. Do you fathom this morning the substitutionary and sacrificial death of Christ accomplished imputation and reconciliation? Say amen if you understand that this morning. Amen. 
Oliver Cromwell was a great leader in England. And he held a very strict standard for soldiers. One of his young soldiers in the English army deviated from a command. And when he returned, the equivalent of the military police met this young man, put him into a dungy prison. And Oliver Cromwell announced what the crime of this young man was. He says, you're going to die tonight because you disobeyed my word. He says, when the bells ring at curfew, you're going to die tonight. And there in that town of England, they had a huge church bell that they would ring to make announcements. I'll talk about that a little bit tonight. And they were getting ready to ring that bell. They brought the young man out, brought him to the gallows where they were going to hang him till he died. The noose was around his neck. All they had to do was kick the block out from under him and his, hang, his knees would dangle on by his own body weight. He would strangle himself. And as they looked at the bell ringer, they told the bell ringer, start ringing the bell. But as he started to pull on the bell, on that rope, he noticed that instead of the ringing of a clapper against the metal bell, there was a, there was a dense thud every time he did that. And he kept pulling. He noticed that, that, that pulling on the weight of that bell seemed to be much more heavier than, ever be, than he did before. He had done this many times. But as he pulled, he said, man, this is so heavy. And as he pulled, all he heard was a, was a dense thud against that. So after several minutes, the, Oliver Cromwell said, what's wrong with the bell? Somebody go check out what's going on. This man is pulling with the bell and nothing's going on. And he sent some guards up there. And as they did so, they noticed a young lady clap, holding on to the clapper there. Her hands were bloodied and her face was bruised. And they realized that this young lady was holding on to the clapper to prevent from knocking against the metal. They took the young lady down. She was bloodied and she was bruised and she was just all disheveled, if you would, from being up there and just trying to hold on to that clapper. And they realized that was the fiancé of the young man. She climbed all the way up to that belfry and put her arms around that clapper and she said, I'm determined. I'm going to hold on to this. I'm not going to let the bell ring tonight. I don't want my lover to die. When she explained what she did and why she did, instead of being punished, Oliver Cromwell had a, had, was touching his heart, and he told the young lady, he said, young lady, he says, tonight, the bell should not ring at curfew because of the sacrificial love you had for your lover. Can I tell you tonight, the bells don't have to ring for every sinner tonight. You can be saved today because Jesus Christ died for your sins. He took your place. He was that eternal sacrifice. Notice as we close this morning, one last thing. God was in Christ. We see a supernatural entry. God was in Christ. We see a sinless essence. God was in Christ. We see a substitution experience. But notice, God was in Christ. We see a saving effect. Why did he do all that? 2 Corinthians 5.17 explains that. Therefore, if any man be in Christ. Now, God was in Christ. But you got to get Christ in you. Amen? you got to get Christ in you. Paul said, Christ liveth in me. How does Christ live in you? You've got to receive him by faith. You've got to receive him by faith as your Savior. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, now the if means the decision is yours. If any man be in Christ. If, you're, if you've not made that decision, you're not in Christ. But if you've made that decision, a transformation comes in effect. We call that regeneration. You've become a new creature. You're a new creation. You're not the old person anymore. Praise God. Amen. You're a new person in Jesus Christ. Just like he turned the water to wine, he turned a sinner into a saint. 
He turned a lost person to someone who is a child of God. He says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are past. What are those old things? They listen, the past is forgiven. All things are passed away. They're put aside. God's not going to bring up those dead old bones. And, listen, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God's forgiven us of our sins. All things are become new. Listen, all things are, are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. He, he gives you a new life through a new birth. You have a new responsibility. Everything's new in Jesus Christ. I mean, I'll tell you what, what's great about Christmas time is sometimes you got, you got some things that are old and broken down. And thank God somebody gives you a present of something that's new. It's fresh. It's never been broken in. It's never been used. There's something about something that's new that appeals to us. And listen today, the great thing that happens in your life when you get Jesus Christ as Savior, you are a new person in Jesus Christ. The saving effect, what does that mean? Well, I said our sin debt's paid completely. There's no more sacrifices for sin that are necessary. He saves us from all of our sins. He forgives us of all of our sins. Heaven is our home. He talks about then the preceding verses of chapter five. But we must understand, go back to verse 17. If any man be in Christ, salvation is through Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12 tells us this. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The name of Jesus Christ saves us from our sins. You can't go through another name. No other name can save you from your sins. Only the name of Jesus Christ. What is Christmas? Christmas is the fact that Christ came into this world to die for sinners. Corey Ten Boom said this, who can add to Christmas? The perfect motive is that God so loved the world. The perfect gift is that he gave his only son. The only requirement is to believe in him. The reward of faith is all that you have to have to have everlasting life. Christmas is about Jesus Christ who came into this world by way of a virgin birth who had a sinless life who died as our substitute and sacrificed for our sins who rose again from the dead the Bible says in 1 Peter 3.18 he was quickened by the spirit and he offers to you and I the wonderful gift of eternal life in Christmas time the greatest gift to receive is the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. At Christmas time, the greatest thing to comprehend in our heart and our thoughts as believers of Jesus Christ and as sons and daughters of God is understanding Jesus Christ is the Son of God who took our place. That's why I love that statement. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that sons of men can become sons of God. God wants you and his family. God wants you to be saved. Would you receive him today? And if you're already saved, would you do what it says in verse 14? Verse 14, verse, 14, uh, verse 15, verse 15 says, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. What does this all mean for you and I? It means this, that you have a purpose now. You can live for Jesus Christ. He died for you so that you can live for him. Would you do that this morning? That's what Brother Vaughn's saying about today. Born to die. And Jesus Christ died so that you can live. Would you live for him today? And if you're not saved, would you trust him this morning as your savior? 